Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. So hi everybody, I'm so excited to have Dr. Maggie Kaday here. She is an amazing rheumatologist in New York. And I'm just going to jump right in. So Dr. Kaday, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you became a doctor? Thanks so much for having me. This has been something I've been looking forward to for a long time. And I know like you use your platform to reach out to so many patients with arthritis and talk about so many issues. So I'm excited to be part of this today. So my journey into medicine, my dad is an OBGYN and he immigrated from Haiti to come to the United States to seek a medical education. And I remember just watching him study and watching the joy he got from taking care of patients in general and really helping people. And as an immigrant, really helping people of other ethnicities, just, you know, navigate them themselves through the healthcare system. And when I was younger, my pediatrician was someone I really looked up to. I felt comfortable going to the doctor's office. I felt like he sat and listened to me. He heard what I had to say, even when I was a, a child. And I knew that at that point that I wanted to do the same for other people, help improve their quality of life in some aspect, and also just be there to take care of them and know, help them know that there are people who care about them and are 
very aware of their health issues and will help them make their lives better. So that's the reason why I became a doctor. And, you know, we could talk about why I became a rheumatologist. You know, yeah, you're, re you're reading my mind. Yeah. And that's an amazing story. And it's so powerful to have those experiences early on in life with doctors who are so loving and caring, like, of course, your own father and your pediatrician. So that's wonderful. And yeah, you know, there's so many different specialties you could have chosen. You know, there's pediatrics, there's OBGYN, there's dermatology. So what made you choose rheumatology? Yeah. So as I stated, I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician like my entire life because of my experience initially. And then in medical school, I actually loved women's health and was selected to go into OB anesthesia. But I had a few experiences in medical school that really made me rethink my specialty. And one of them was meeting a young female around my age in the 20s. She was diagnosed with lupus. And at the time I had no idea what lupus was. We were just starting our rheumatology elective or autoimmune disease section. And I was starting to learn more about this. And what struck me with her was that she was my age. She was African-American female. She was diagnosed with lupus, but really didn't know much about her disease or really the complications of the disease. And she never really understood why she had to be on medications and just really wasn't as informed as she probably should have been and really didn't feel like she had a good relationship with her own personal physician. So I was really interested in her disease process. And as time went on, I watched her journey and she ended up passing away from complications of lupus. And I remember thinking to myself, how could this young woman this age really pass away from something that she really didn't understand much about? And so that kind of got my wheels turning in terms of what I wanted to do. And as I said, I mastered in anesthesiology. I was happy to do it, but it wasn't until my internship year that I met a few women actually with lupus who were dismissed you know, with their symptoms. They were told they had viral illness or depression or fibromyalgia. And I was able to help them during their journey. And a lot of them were women, a lot of them were mothers. And I just felt that this was a disease that I could really make an impact on. A lot of you know, women, are affected by autoimmune diseases, a lot of minority women are affected. And I felt that they felt comfortable coming to me and that they knew that I could hear and acknowledge their symptoms and would not stop until a diagnosis was made, whether it was autoimmune disease or something else. And I just felt that, you know, there needed to be more awareness about lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, all these other autoimmune diseases that are really sometimes an enigma. And sometimes the patients need some reassurance or they need someone to help guide them through the diagnosis. So it was really my internship year that really solidified my choice. And then I switched course all completely and decided to pursue a rheumatology fellowship at NYU. That's incredible. And yeah, I think that your statement about hearing how so many women had been dismissed will just really resonate with a lot of the listeners because a lot of the listeners, unfortunately, are patients who've had that experience as well. And I can't even imagine, like in my case, I'm a you know, Caucasian woman, but, and I was dismissed by a lot of doctors, but I know there's another layer of complexity when you add like the racial, you know, differences in how women of color are treated when they present with pain or unusual symptoms. So 
I think you're just uh, such an amazing example of somebody who, you know, the doctor that everyone wishes they could have, right? The doctor that listens and is empathetic and like you said, won't stop until you find an answer. That's like, those are like golden nuggets to any patient. They're like, oh my gosh, yes, let's clone her. <laughs> and I may not know all the answers. And that's something, you know, a lot of times as rheumatologists, we do like to speak with our patients because the immune system is so complex. There's so many mimickers of diseases. So part of it is really trying to rule out other disease processes too. But, you know, with rheumatologists, we don't always know the answer. And sometimes the journey is long and we are on the journey with you. So as things are evolving in the immune system, the rheumatologist or the physician is also finding out more things or things are becoming more clearer. So it is something that I do tell my patients to be patient and to understand that we may not always know the answers right away, but we can try to help either exclude other diseases or try to hone in on a disease after several months. Yeah, but I think that's such a giant paradigm shift from what I think a lot of us have experienced, especially with like, and I think primary care is extremely hard specialty, but you know, there was, there's a lot of people whose primary care physicians were like, your labs are fine. You're fine. You don't have anything as opposed to, I'm not sure what's causing your symptoms. Let's like you said, go on this journey together. Like when you feel like you've just been dismissed and like the doctors, like, we don't know what, we don't think anything's wrong with you. It's a totally different psychological experience than saying, you know, we don't know what's wrong right now, but we believe you that you're experiencing this and we will work with you to get. And I think that's why rheumatology is just like the unsung heroes, you know, <laughs> or, I mean, they're being more sung now, right? Because yeah. of the COVID. COVID. But, um, yeah. Everyone's like the immune system. Hmm, now we care about that now. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just phenomenal. I'm sorry. I just have so many different like directions my brain wants to go right now. But back to the thread about, I remember we talked earlier, you didn't have a lot of experience with like doctors, you know, who quote unquote, look like you or have the same characteristics. So can you explain a little bit about how that part of your journey motivated you in medicine and some of the experiences of how you broke barriers? Absolutely. So I mentioned, I was lucky enough to have my dad as, you know, a role model. And I actually do have many family members, extended family members who are physicians. So to me, it wasn't something I ever thought about growing up because I saw them. But as I got into medical school, got into graduate school, college, I realized that there weren't a lot of physicians that look like me. In fact, for black female physicians, we only make up 2% of the physician population, which to me wow. is so astounding. And when you think of so many patients, especially in rheumatology, a lot of these patients you know, experiencing lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases, many patients are minority patients. So it is difficult sometimes for these patients maybe to be more compliant or maybe to feel comfortable expressing their symptoms or their questions because they are not finding a female physician and then be someone, again, who is a minority physician. So I realized that earlier on in my career. And so I just kept them going. I knew that this was something I wanted to do. I have never shied away from being someone who could fight for, you know, my rights. You know, my mom was someone who was inspirational with that too and always taught me that you can do this. There's no obstacle that's big enough. And so early on, I, you know, obviously try to attend like 
the best schools I could get into. Did know that academics didn't matter, especially for a lot of minority physicians. And I was able to, you know, get into a great medical school, which was one of the first medical schools that not only accepted women as applicants, but also had a large diverse class. So I knew that wow. I want part of that group. And again, it would have been great. I did have a good mentor, but I wanted more female mentors. And I was lucky enough to find someone who inspired me to be part of the women's health pathway. So I knew I wanted to focus on an area of women's health. And she was a Hispanic doctor and I, I still communicate with her today. And she really helped me navigate through the women's health pathway at my school. She helped me get into clerkships at Harvard for the summer, which again was amazing because they did also promote a lot of programs for diverse students. And I was also selected as a graduation speaker, which, you know, again, in the past, there hadn't been a lot of minority females who had presented. So it was great for other students and other people to see someone who looked like me, who could be a speaker and a champion for them during medical school education. And then like, as I went on, you know, again, there aren't a lot of African-American fellows at rheumatology fellowships and really ended up at a great institution, NYU Hospital for Joint Diseases, which really promotes a lot of academic and clinical research. And I was able to participate in the American College of Rheumatology subcommittee as a fellow, again, devoting my time to quality measures, went down to Washington, D.C. to advocate for the Arthritis Correct sponsorship bill for research and clinical, clinical funding. So I've been able to do this. And then as I worked my way up in my academic career, I was one of the youngest mentors as well as director of my department. So again, I've always tried to push through and, it, you know, even though I was young, I think I was two or three years in, I knew I had what it took to really establish a rheumatology curriculum, again, be mentors for residents and fellows and medical students who rotated through the hospital clerkship. So I'm continuing to, you know, do this by blogging, by really encouraging students to go into the field because they may not want to, they don't see people that look like themselves or they may think it's too hard or they can't push through or they'll never attain a big academic or clinical position. So I hope I can continue to, to break through those barriers. And I have so many colleagues that I've met on Instagram and other platforms that have also encouraged me, but it really feels differently when you have a support group behind you. That totally makes sense that I've been having such a blast on Instagram and TikTok in particular, following a lot of <laughs> female physicians in general and then female physicians of color. It's just been really amazing. You know, this is what a, this is what a doctor looks like, I think was one of the campaigns or this is what yep. a physician, because I know it's so common to be like, people will ask if it's just a woman in general, but especially if it's a woman of color, like a patient will be like, when's the doctor coming in? I am the doctor. <laughs> Oh, it happens every day. Or they're so shocked, say, oh, I'm waiting for the doctor still. And meanwhile, I started my visit. I've introduced myself. I will say this too. I, again, because autoimmune diseases do affect a large number of minority patients, especially women, I have found so much gratitude. And, you know, a lot of these patients are so happy when they do see me and they do they do realize that like I'm going to be part of their care or I, I can realize or they congratulate me for sticking it through medicine. So I have found those responses as well, which has been so encouraging and really makes me feel like I'm doing what I need to do. So that's one thing. And then recently on Instagram, you know, I, we talked about Instagram being a great platform for physicians to meet each other and express themselves. 
during the summer, we had the Share the Medical Mic campaign, and it was a campaign started on Twitter, actually, by a physician, Dr. Argavon, and she and her colleagues invited me to participate in this campaign where there was 40 Black female physicians who took over accounts of 40 non-Black physicians, and we were able to speak about topics relating to like postpartum depression in the minority community, mental health issues, just any topic, fibroids, arthritis, autoimmune diseases, how it feels to be a Black female physician in the world, healthcare world today. All these topics were covered. And I'm so grateful that we had these allies, these amazing female physicians who gave us their Instagram accounts to reach a new set of audience who would listen to what we had to say. So we are making strides. And again, the support is there. I still think that we need to do the work in terms of our healthcare disparities. And again, finding physicians who can relate to patients and just make them feel more comfortable and not mistrust the healthcare system as much. That was incredible. And I did see that campaign on, on Instagram, the takeovers, and it was really, really powerful. And for, for me, I definitely was made aware of how kind of not diverse my feed was previously too. So I think there's been such a shift in awareness. But is there anything you want to share? I know you already shared about lupus and some of the statistics around, you know, racial disparities or the people of color are more likely to develop, you know, certain autoimmune conditions. Is there anything more you wanted to share with the audience about like racial disparities in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think this year, especially with COVID, we are realizing that the minority populations are susceptible to COVID because of the underlying conditions like hypertension, diabetes, lung disease, like emphysema, asthma, as well as um, immunosuppressed patients with cancer. And we do know that minority communities, especially the black communities, have the worst outcomes when it comes to all of these conditions, as well as mental health. So it is something that we really do have to start paying attention to. Also maternal fetal rates are worse for the minority communities. Postpartum depression outcomes are worse and medications may not be provided to those individuals as much as maybe other races. Even within arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, there are studies looking and seeing that minority communities are not being offered biologic therapies as much, or the patients are not taking the biologics because of a mistrust in the healthcare system and their physicians. So it really does span so many medical specialties. It's not just arthritis. It's not just blood pressure. It's not just diabetes. It, it's not cancer. It really is everything, including pediatric health, gynecological health. And that's what's really striking is that we do have to do better because it really does run the gamut of conditions and we do have to develop more trust for these patients. We do have to maybe look into the other barriers like access to insurance, whether testing is being done, preventive screening, even flu shots, vaccinations, are they being offered? Are they being talked about? You know, even with arthritis, we know with rheumatoid arthritis, heart disease is one of the number one complications of rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And these are the same diseases that are affecting minority communities. So they're all, tied together. So I just want people to know that it's not just one disease. It really runs the whole spectrum. And we as physicians, we as a public health community, the government, we really have to do better. And, you know, even with COVID, the vaccine trials are in progress right now. And we are again finding out that 
the ethnic communities, minority communities are not maybe being represented as much because they don't want to participate. So we do, again, maybe we need to find black investigators, maybe we need more information about the vaccine, about what it can do to help all communities and really push the effort to try to reduce the health disparities and get more people involved in education. That makes a lot of sense. You, you touched on all the different like systemic barriers. And I think a lot of times people can get really some oversimplistic about it and they'll be like, oh, well, someone just needs to work harder to reduce their blood pressure. It's like, okay, well, no, there's actually all these different systemic factors that contribute to that person, maybe having high blood pressure or some other, you know, risk factor. So and genetics yeah. plays a role, like diseases like lupus. We do know that some medications that work for lupus nephritis in Caucasians and other ethnic groups do not work as well in the minority groups or like minorities have worse outcomes for kidney disease and neurological disease and lupus. So there's so many factors that really do need to be explored, but we also have to try to bridge the gap, improve the communication and also improve the trust so that these patients are willing to participate in studies and we can find out more information about the genetic socioeconomic factors that may play a role. That makes so much sense. And I was just learning a little bit about like intergenerational trauma and how that can be kind of coded into our biology as well. And just thinking about how many racial traumas there have been, not even a hundred years ago, not even 50 years ago, you know? So think, I mean, it, it makes sense that, that it's, this would be something that people have to look at. And then in general, is there anything more you wanted to say about like representation in medicine, racial representation of women? Yeah, absolutely. I think right now we know in medical school, there's more than 50% of the applicants are females, which I think are great. We do know that women are still struggling to achieve high academic and clinical positions within healthcare systems or their practice. So there still needs to be work done in that aspect. You know, obviously Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away and she was a champion of gender equality. And I was just listening to her story about how she graduated from like a top law school, obviously a Harvard, I mean, she went to Harvard first and then Columbia Law School and she was a mom and it was hard, even though she graduated at top of her class, it was so difficult for her to find a job. And I think women still face that same problem today, even though in medicine, we do make up half the, the medical school classes and other specialties, there are still barriers to us achieving high academic positions or clinical positions. And the same goes for it's even worse for minority physicians. So I think the first thing is to at least start in elementary school, high school, you know, having a females, black females, minority females, whether it's Asian, Native Americans, Hispanic, Latinos, having representation in the classroom so that these kids know that they can achieve, you know, great success in whatever profession they choose, that they can become a physician or a healthcare practitioner even though it's long work, it may be a lot of money, a lot of financial sacrifice, but there are programs out there that can help these students. And it's important for, you know, the mentors to be involved. So we can tell the students that there are these opportunities. And then as they go into medical school and residency, it really is important to develop a network. I'm actually going to be involved in doing that for my medical school, being involved in creating a diverse, diversity alumni you know, consortium or network. So that way these students have mentors. They know that 
these are the different specialties that are available to them, that they can do it. Because it's so hard to look at the finish line when you feel like there's so many obstacles in front of you. You may not be motivated to continue the path. So representation does matter. It, it matters for students, for even attendings like me in my, in my stage of career, I wanna know that I can do other things, you know, aside from clinical medicine. There are people who are in pharmaceuticals, who are in fitness, who are nutritionists, who are occupational therapists, speech therapists. I mean, there's so many, and people are not aware of that, you know? So it's important, and it's important to find people that look like you, because if you can see it, you can dream of it. And, you know, again, with Miss. Kamala Harris being the vice presidential candidate. Now there might be some other girl thinking about, I can do this as well. So it really, representation really matters across the board. And again, it matters for patients too, because at the end of the day, they're not gonna be compliant if they don't trust their practitioner. It doesn't matter what you mm -hmm. say to them, what material you provide them. If they don't trust their provider, they're not gonna do what is needed to be done to advance their lifestyle and their health. That's such a beautiful point. Thinking about my own story when it comes to trust, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, was it hard for you when you were put on like methotrexate and Enbrel very quickly? I first was put on sulfasalazine, then methotrexate, and then my stomach didn't like sulfasalazine, and then I was put on Enbrel. Like within four or five months of my diagnosis, it was like a really, you know, it was the classic like early aggressive therapy. And I was like, it was not hard because I just completely trusted her. Like, you know, and maybe on the one hand, that is maybe a part of my privilege of being a, you know, a white woman who has never been systematically oppressed in, in, a, in a medical situation, right? But like, it wasn't, didn't even occur to me to like look online or like now this was 2003, so there weren't like patient communities online that I knew of. But point being, you know, I know it's actually a huge hump to get patients over the fear of medications. The other thing I was going to say is, you know, I think you said it starts with childhood when it comes to, you know, the representation. And so true. I, I always write when I see articles where they've automatically written the gender of a doctor as male, I always write to them and say like, you know, you need to change that to he or she. And yes. it's funny, so I was always really, really careful about that with my son. Like if we were playing with Legos, you know, Lego guys or girls, and it would be like, you know, here's the doctor, here's this, like she, the doctor. And one time he actually, when he was playing with toys or the Lego people, he defaulted to she for doctor because all the doctors he had had so far had been female and he's come with me to some appointments and he had seen a couple male doctors but I was like oh my gosh he defaulted to she that's awesome yeah. <laughs> let's talk about no. what happened like when I was when, even when I was little in the 80s you know you just it was like boys were doctors girls are nurses you know and not that there's anything you know nurses are incredible it's a, a very tough job a lot of people wouldn't be able to do but you know it just there was this it's the assumption, yes, absolutely. Assumption. Or even early in my career, I would go to these conferences and look around, even with rheumatology initially, it was like purely a lot of men. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you, I would feel a little, you know, left out because uh, you would look around. I mean, now that's changed over the years, which is great, but I can imagine for patients, you know, maybe a few years ago, like as a female, like a young female who may be looking into fertility options and, you know, worried about her self-esteem because she's on steroids and has gained weight and acne, it might be more difficult for a male physician to empathize 
with why she wouldn't want to be on the medication or her psychological and emotional difficulties really dealing with her disease because she is a female. So I can relate to that because I've been a female. I've gone through that stage. I have been self-conscious about the way I look or the weight. And so I feel like it really is better for some females to choose, you know, another female physician if they feel more comfortable or again, be able to relate about family planning, you know, menstrual periods, other things. You know, the male doctors are great, of course, but again, sometimes there is a little, there is a little difference. And, um, you know, and again, women sometimes tend to listen, you know, a little bit better or more carefully, or again, maybe a little less dismissive sometimes. So I think there is a gift sometimes for these patients when they do find a same sex physician. Totally. And I think a lot of it too is just having choices, right? Like if your whole, the only pool of doctors you can choose from as a patient is a homogenous group of like older white males, that doesn't give you as many kind of personality options or different, you know, communication styles as like having a diverse group to pick from too. So yes, some people, you know, even if they're a woman, they might, they might love seeing their male physician. That's great. But if they had no choice, that's the problem, right? And exactly. so, yeah, it's just, it's really, I, I just love this conversation. Speaking of rheumatology in general, I think that I want to give you a chance to kind of demystify a few things about rheumatology mm-hmm. or give you a chance to say what, a few things maybe that you wish patients knew, because I know that for me, so I'll say something really quick. When I, when I was diagnosed, it was six years before I became an occupational therapist or before I started OT school. And when I became a healthcare provider, I learned so much more about the system and kind of how things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I realized I was being really unrealistic with what I was wishing for. So I want to give you a chance to maybe explain a little bit, like, why can't I just talk to my doctor for two hours or, you know? Yes. Patients would love that. And patients would love that too. And many years ago, I think when my dad was a physician, he was able to spend a lot more time with his patients. I do talk to my patients and let them know that because of this healthcare system we are in now, physicians do have a lot of constraints. And unfortunately, it's not something that we like because trust me, many physicians do talk about this and are not happy with the time limit. A lot of times visits are 15 to 20, 25 minutes. And for rheumatology patients, that really is not enough. And honestly, for any patient, that's not a lot because you are checking in with their, obviously, their psychological health, their mental health, their physical health, and just catching up and doing medication reconciliation and allergy check. So I just want patients to know that it's, I know sometimes they may feel rushed, but there are constraints because the visits are lined up and there's always someone behind them. And it's, we can't cut into that other person's time. And again, it's, you know, right now the insurance companies and other healthcare institutions have their guidelines that they provide to the physicians. So that's number one. I wish we could spend more time. Number two, even with medication, there might be a medication we want to place you on. Sometimes it's not up to us. You know, a lot of the insurance companies have a major role in what gets approved. So even though you may read about something that you may want, like an injection, infusion, or even oral medication, depending on the insurance company, the physician can try to explain why we think the patient should be on it, but it doesn't always work out. So just know that we are advocating for you, but 
we also have constraints as well. Also, sometimes, I, I mentioned this earlier on, it's frustrating for the patients. I get it because they feel a certain way. Sometimes the labs do not come back positive and there's nothing there. And sometimes it's very clear cut that it's not autoimmune related. And sometimes it's not, but it hasn't presented itself initially. So you do have to be patient with us to come back maybe you know, two more or three more times during the year to see if the disease does evolve. But just because we can't find something now doesn't mean that it may not evolve. And then I would say, you know, the last two things I would want to say is a lot of times with arthritis, it's not just your joints. I know sometimes patients can say, I don't need the medication. It's just my joints. I'm fine. I can get over it. A lot of times, most of the times, aside from like local osteoarthritis or wear and tear arthritis, these other systemic joints, arthritis, inflammatory disease, they do have systemic consequences. So I mentioned before, sometimes you can have atherosclerosis or heart disease. Sometimes there's kidney disease, lung disease, eye disease, neurological disease. So being aggressive and treating your disease early or trying to get it diagnosed early is really important because it's not just about your joints often, it's about your whole body and other systemic organs that are being affected as well. So just think about it as the whole body, not just localized to one thing. Obviously there are things like trigger finger and again, osteoarthritis that can be local, but some of the other things like rheumatoid arthritis or Sjogren's syndrome, vasculitis, myositis involve so many other organs. And then lastly is, you know, you can be your own advocate. So I always tell my patients, read about the medications I'm giving you. You can trust me, but at the end of the day, you are the decision maker for your health and life. I want you to read the information. If you don't understand something, ask me why. I see so many patients come in and they're on medications and they have no idea why they're taking the medication. Or they don't even know why they're coming to a rheumatologist because they were referred. Ask the questions. If you're not in charge of your life or your health, no one else will be. And yes, I'm the physician and I can guide you and give you the information and my advice, but ultimately you have to take the medication. You have to go get the test. You have to know why you're on these medications. So you have to be your own advocate. Absolutely. The, the metaphor I've been operating from a lot lately is that it's a job to be a patient. Like it's a job that doesn't come with an orientation manual. Like I realize there's just so many skills that you learn over time as a patient. And there are some you know, tips and tricks, of course, that different nonprofits give. Like I've definitely learned all about advocacy from the Arthritis Foundation, and I've learned so much from other, you know, nonprofits and patient education resources. But I think that like the lack of a comprehensive like orientation to the disease is really a huge problem for a lot of patients because what they end up doing is they go to social media and they get extremely confused. Ah, you know, what do I do? So the point being that it's almost like if you grew up thinking of the medical system as like the old model of like the doctor's quote unquote, the voice of God. And like, you just, you're passively receiving whatever the doctor says. It's almost like a rude awakening, but it's also empowering. It's like a double-edged sword where you're like, wait a minute, the doctor isn't just going to tell me what to do. I yeah. have to be involved in my care. This is a chronic lifelong condition. So you're like, okay, this is an empowering thing, but it's also like, it's work for me to now do. I did not go to med school for 10 years. Like I need to learn like what, what is a TNF inhibitor? What is 
what is it actually doing in my joints and in my body? And a friend of mine, sorry, now another related point, but she did a little informal poll on Instagram, very unscientific in the sense of real publishable science, but she was shocked that 90% of the people said that they had minimized their symptoms when talking to the doctor. And, and then when she followed up with some of them, they were afraid of the doctor saying that they needed to take more medicine because they're afraid of having to increase, you know? So yeah, like you said, that has to be built on a foundation of trust with your doctor. Like I remember even with my rheumatologist, I'm such an optimist that after a while she realized that like, I'm not trying to like minimize my symptoms specifically for any reason. It's just that I'm always like, oh, it's been a little bad this week, but it's, it, I'm sure it'll get better or it's fine. I just can't really uncurl my fingers from a fist in the morning, but I'm sure it'll get better tomorrow. And she's like, wait, no, that's, we're not going to skim over that. Like we need to actually deal with this, you know? No, absolutely. You have to be honest about your symptoms. Uh, I mean, things that you're on in terms of maybe herbal medications or other, you know, that's another thing too. Like there are patients because they're on pain, they are in pain that they take medications or other supplements. You have to be honest about it. Or if you're smoking, obviously smoking is horrible for rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases in general, but really there's been a correlation with rheumatoid arthritis. It, you have to be, and I found like, I could smell the smoke on these patients when they come in the room. They, they say they're not, and then it's not until after some probing that I, they, I found that they have you know, minimized that detail in their life. And then also too, in terms of emotional and psychological health, I found that a lot, I'm more in tune with it, that I've had to ask a few patients whether they are severely depressed or they're suicidal, because, you know, again, because of the chronic pain, a lot of them do kind of dismiss it after a while. And, you know, I've had to really um, up up my depression screening with a lot of these patients. And I just seeing them, you know, maybe someone's not making eye contact or they're a little bit more sullen than usual. So these are all things that, you know, we have to pay attention to as physicians. And I just wish, again, that there was more time in the visit because then you could really address all these issues. But it really is, it's not a paternalistic relationship anymore. And I definitely say that to my patients when they come in, because they will say, what do you want me to take? And I could say, these are the three or four things that are available. You know, what are you more comfortable taking? Because an example is something like methotrexate. If you're a young person going out drinking every week, it doesn't matter if methotrexate is the cornerstone therapy for rheumatoid arthritis it is just not good because of liver abnormalities and other issues. So that may not be the right option for you. Or if you are thinking about getting pregnant within the first two years, yes, methotrexate is a great drug. But again, I'm not gonna put someone on that if they're thinking about starting a family because of its, its teratogenic. So it's, again, it's, it's not paternalistic. You are a participant in your care. Yes, it's more work, but I think especially with rheumatology, it, you have to be involved. Totally. And I, I have to put a quick plug in for like occupational therapists or also like social workers too can really help patients develop these like these skills that are kind of under the umbrella of something called self-management. This I know you know what that is, but for the people listening, self-management is like the skills needed to manage your disease on a daily basis and your health in general. Like everyone 
you know, could benefit from self-management skills. It's like the psychological, you know, the ways of getting yourself motivated to exercise or eat healthily. And um, in the case of, you know, managing a chronic illness, it's also those, like what I call the CEO skills or like executive functioning skills, tracking your symptoms, tracking your medications, like no one else is doing that for you. I mean, the, the computer system of your local doctor does have that information. Sometimes I'm like, You're, don't make me go through the whole list again. Like I know you have it on your computer, but you know, the patients, if they need help with that, like in occupational therapy, our default visit is usually 50 minutes. So we actually get longer. We get longer. <laughs> like, we feel, I feel lucky for that, you know, but for some reason we're not utilized very often in the management of like inflammatory arthritis outside of like hand therapy, which is such a small sliver of what we can do. And it's really important. Obviously the hands are extremely important for function, but like we can also work on these executive functioning skills and these health, you know, we have a whole, our occupational therapy scope of practice called health management and maintenance. And that's these, all these skills. So, you know, I, I am hopeful and I'm, I'm getting involved in the American College of Rheumatology as an OT help. I know there's some other amazing, you know, allied health professionals out there trying to kind of elevate the role of the rehab professions like OT and PT. And of course, I say the care of people with autoimmune diseases, but all, and also counseling and psychology. Those are also places where you get like the default visit of 60 minutes. So, you know, it's like, why do the physicians only get 15? Like... Oh. It, it, it's, it's astounding. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we'll have to go back to Washington, D.C. again yes, and advocate sure. some more. <laughs> but yeah, just so you know, for the people listening, it's not like your doctor doesn't want to spend more time with you, depending. I'm sure some of them might be tired if it's Friday at the end of the day. Right, but, um, exactly. Yeah. Are there any um, pieces or nuggets of advice for patients to like get the most out of their appointments that you've seen, like patients that come with certain tools or skills? Yes, absolutely. I mean, being organized is, is a great thing. You kind of touched upon some of them. Knowing your medications, it, it has to be asked at every visit because it's a medication reconciliation. And it's just helpful, even if you don't want to go through it, just have a snapshot of the ones that you're taking. Because again, there are medications that are maybe temporary that are still on your list and needs to be crossed off. Also, that's true. I didn't mean to say it wasn't important. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, it is important. <laughs> it is important. Exactly. Um, journaling your symptoms again, recording when you have flares or if there's any kind of trigger that you have identified is really important. I always like to have my patients get their blood work done before the visit. So that way when they come in, we can talk about it. And it's not, we're not playing cat and mouse in terms of like, getting in touch with uh, each other after the visit in terms of lab results. And then that way you can construct a plan at the visit and be able to ask questions about what to do next. So I like to, again, prepare before. So I would just say those are like the main things, like having your, having the labs done, being, you know, really organized with your medication and journaling your symptoms. If you're a new patient, obviously you probably have like a lot of information coming in maybe sending that information prior to the visit. I can't guarantee like all physicians will get to all the information before, but at least it's easier for them to see it in front of them and they can review some of it, maybe not all of it. So again, just being, just being prepared. And again, being an advocate, you know, if there's something that you have seen or read about, bring it in. Because a lot of times patients will say, oh, I, I heard about this medication, but then they don't have the medication in front of them. And then they spend a lot, you know, the next 10 minutes trying to figure that out. So it's like going to school or going to work. You have to be prepared 
because you do have a very finite amount of time and you want to maximize that time to come up with a plan and really discuss your symptoms. That makes so much sense. And yeah, I don't know if every, if this is universal in my clinics here in the Seattle area, a lot of them use something called my chart, which is like an email system that, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll ping my doctor like a week before and say, okay, here's like my four main questions. Like, you know, if one of these is like, if you think it's like a super simple answer, if you have time to let me know before, so we don't kind of end up quote unquote wasting the time, you know, yeah. talking about it back and forth, opposed to like a more difficult decision, like, oh, I'm kind of flaring, but I'm kind of not, but I think this medication's wearing off, but maybe we should stay on it a little longer or like, yeah. So uh, yeah. yeah. Simple questions can, yeah, definitely be addressed on the portal, you know, cause sometimes you'll get like a couple, many questions and it's, just, you know, one simple question is great, but back and forth, you really need to, you really need to discuss with your doctor because it's very hard to articulate information over email. It really is because you so can't true. really explain if someone comes in and they have like a positive ANA, you know, if I don't really think it's anything serious, it's very easy when they're in the office for me to explain like this can be seen in healthy individuals, but sometimes medications or viral illness or autoimmune disease, but I don't think you have an autoimmune disease. Versus doing it on email always leads to 10 or 14 different other questions. So something like that really needs to be discussed in person. That makes a lot of sense. Almost like kind of like the difference between open questions and closed questions. You know, like if it's like an open question, maybe wait for the appointment. If it's a closed question, like a yes or no, like should I get a second flu shot? Yes or no, you know. Or they can say, actually, that's, we need to have a discussion about that versus you know, I can just tell you. And the other thing I want to touch on briefly is just because I think there's a, a real lack of awareness that fatigue is actually related to the disease itself. So, you know, one of the questions is on social media, you know, how come sometimes the medications seems that they only work for pain or only work for fatigue? Does that make sense? I mean, fatigue is something that a lot of autoimmune disease patients complain about. It's, you know, it's a very blurry area because sometimes it could be fatigue from the chronic pain or chronic disability or deconditioning of the muscles and the joints. Sometimes it is from the disease itself, like uncontrolled activity, you know, the uncontrolled inflammation. That's why it's important to get blood work done before, see if your inflammation markers are high. Is your disease activity not controlled? And maybe that you need a higher dose. Are you having a flare that's causing the fatigue? You know, you might need like a steroid or something transient to help you with that. Other factors are contributing to fatigue as well. So there are biologic therapies that do target these chemicals or cytokines specifically, and then patients do report some improvement in fatigue. And sometimes it could just be from like anemia. Like we do know a lot of these diseases have anemia, chronic disease. So again, sometimes patients don't realize that because of their anemia, they're having this fatigue. So there is a lot of ideology from it. Most of the time, it's probably from uncontrolled disease activity. And that's why you do need to increase your medications as much as sometimes you don't want to. But it's really, there are objective measures that the physician is focusing on, including inflammation markers, but also your clinical symptoms as well. That makes a lot of sense. I just, yeah, I think that fatigue is also a difficult word to understand because it could connote like physical fatigue. Like I, you know, my, I mentally have energy to do stuff and I just can't right. physically get myself out of bed versus 
like the mental fatigue where it's more like a, the kind of could be more the psychological kind of fatigue where you're like, you're depressed, but physically like you could, if you got the motivation, you could like get yourself up and do stuff. Or there's kind of like that d- double whammy when you have both physical and mental fatigue. Like I can definitely feel one and not the other at times. And it could also be a confounding variable of sleep. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, poor sleep. It's big. Sleep is yeah. definitely deprivation is big in arthritis patients, obviously from chronic pain, if they're having fibromyalgia, it's like they're, um, the tender points may, you know, really be obstacles to comfortable sleeping. So, you know, again, having a healthy lifestyle does help. I know sometimes it's hard for arthritis patients to focus on that. And it really isn't just all about medication. It is really about eating regimen, having incorporation of like fruits and vegetables, omega-3s, different vitamins that help with the immune system. They are important. Really getting some exercise. And I'm not talking about, you know, running a half marathon, although there are patients who can, but even walking like 20 minutes a day gets your heart pumping, you know, oxygen flowing, your joints moving, all these do play a role. And then again, really instituting an adequate sleep regimen, turning off your electronics, settling in, you know, again, exercise helps with this as well. Doing some meditation, helping, you know, doing some yoga. It really is not just a one step, one factor solution. It really is the whole package. Yeah, I totally have experienced that. You know, at first I felt like, oh yeah, this is just kind of like the analogy I use is like, like an ear infection where you just kind of take the medicine and then it goes away. That's kind of how I thought it was at first, you know, uh, through time I realized, oh wait, no, this is, yeah, this is something that you're, it's, it's, again, it's empowering, but it's also a little bit overwhelming to know that you do have a lot of choices in your daily life, you know, in your lifestyle to influence the disease. And like you mentioned earlier, journaling and tracking can be such a powerful thing. It does take a certain level of like literacy and like ability to, you know, sustain like attention to it and follow through, but it can be really empowering to start realizing those correlations. Like, oh yeah, you know, like for me, I know my circadian rhythm is pretty predictable that I feel great in the morning and I definitely get a huge dip in energy in the mid afternoon. And then I feel better in the evening and until I go to sleep. So it's like, you can use that pattern to your advantage. I'm not going to schedule the most important thing of my day at 3 p.m., which is when my brain kind of wants to go take a siesta, you know, so knowing that. And the same with, you know, foods. Like for me, I haven't found any particular foods correlate to my joint symptoms, but there's so many patients who do. They're like, oh my gosh, I ate a tomato and all of a sudden I'm having, you know, a huge amount of stiffness. And I went gluten-free and it didn't have any effect directly on my joints that I could tell, but it had a huge effect on my digestion. Like my digestion motility was so much better after I went gluten-free that I just, my overall sense of like robustness and like comfort in my body was a lot better. So, you know, there's just so many things you can do to kind of influence your, your health, your physical and mental health. So in general, back to the patient physician relationship, do you have any tips for patients to really have a good relationship with their provider? And we kind of already talked about this a little bit, but was there anything else you wanted to share? Yeah. I mean, just be open, communicative, obviously, please be honest (laughs) about whatever you're doing. The physician is not there to judge you. So we've heard it all. You know, I think patients forget that we've been doing this for a while. 
we have literally heard it all. So no one's judging you. Such a good point. (laughs) Like also, if you are not vibing or getting along with your physician for whatever reason, it is a relationship. And if you don't feel that either he or she's not listening to you, or maybe you and she are not connecting, um, she or he, like you honestly could always seek a second opinion because it's like a relationship. And sometimes personalities just don't match or sometimes you may be looking for a more alternative pathway versus a medical pathway. It really is what the patient wants, but just recognize too, like not all physicians are cut from the same cloth as well. So if you find that you're not having the best experience, it's okay to go to another physician. I know so many patients who have stayed with physicians that they don't really care for just because they were rheumatologists and there's, you know, there are other people that you can see. And especially now with virtual visits, you know, it may not be the best thing to do initially when you're meeting someone. But, you know, again, if you can't get to them all the time, there are those options now. So I would just say, you know, again, be also cognizant. As we talked about that the physician cannot be in the office meeting with you for 30, 40 minutes, or if you're late too, we get that a lot that, it's not that the physician does not want to see you, but it also cuts into time for the next person. And as, as I can speak for myself, I want to be cognizant of the next person. So I'm always thinking too about like, how would I want to treat you? How would I want to treat the next person? And if you're running like 20 or 30 minutes late, it's just not enough time. So a rescheduled visit doesn't mean that the physician's upset with you or doesn't like you. It's just like, that's the way it has to be so that everyone has a fair chance or access to the physician. And, you know, again, it's a process and it's a journey. Not all answers are answered at each visit and not, you know, the physician may not know sometimes where to go next. So again, a second opinion is always welcomed or you just speak to your physician. If there is some kind of lack of communication, you know, just speak to the physician because maybe the physician's having a bad day. Maybe there was something that happened in that person's life too, and just had an off day. So just, you know, be conscious that we're all human beings, you know, and physicians should definitely take into account that the patients are struggling and they're in pain and, you know, it's their job to help them. And, you know, also too, it's the patient's job to also recognize that the physician is there to help you and that, you know, listening to some advice, following like medication adherence is important as long as like that's been discussed, you know, it's, it's, we all have our part to play. That makes a lot of sense. And really, yeah, understanding each person is a human being, like you said, is so, is so important And I know that when people are, you know, it's a really emotional experience to be, to be a patient and to feel vulnerable and to feel like your life has just been, you know, changed. I, one of the patients that called in, we did, I did an episode that was all about advice for newly diagnosed patients. They, they, they use the analogy that like, you know, getting diagnosed with RA for them felt like having a grenade thrown in their life, just like a big explosion, you know, and, and recognizing that maybe if you're in that emotional state, you might end up, you know, taking it out, some of the frustration or the fear out on your doctor, you, or you might want, your brain might want to do that and to try to remember that this is the person that's there to help you, you know? Exactly. I've, I've seen that before with people at the front desk too. It's like, oh, it's like a psychology study in the waiting room sometimes, but seeing people, you know, 
yell at the person at the front desk because there can't be an appointment earlier. It's like, they can't, they don't, they're not God. They can't like make more time in the day. Like, I, know. But, I mean, again, I always, I'm always like, one of my best friend's moms used to say, say this when we were teenagers. She's like, I understand, but I don't approve. <laughs> like, yeah. that was like a distinction. You're like, I understand feeling upset. <laughs> I don't approve of taking it out on the messenger, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to share? I mean, you have, you know, a platform to share any <laughs> message yeah. about rheumatology or life. <laughs> I'm grateful to be part of the rheumatologist community. It's a, I mean, to be a black female rheumatologist is a very, 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 very small percentage. I think it's like less than 1%, but I am happy to be there with my patients. Let other female physicians know that I'm there as a resource and they can do it too. And just like to all arthritis patients. So obviously I am a champion of minority health and female health, but you know, I, we're here to take care of everyone. And my belief is like, everyone should have the same access to care and same opportunities. So it's not just about, you know, just focusing on one group. Some groups need more help than others. And that's just a fact. And I'm here to help the groups, but I am here to help everyone and also educate people about arthritis and autoimmune diseases and the other complications, again, like heart disease, things that are not really talked about often that are true, true problems associated with this disease. And also that arthritis patients can lead a healthy life. It may take some time, but be persistent, be consistent as well. And, you know, communicate with your physicians, find support among people in, you know, the arthritis community like you who are doing so much to help patients. Cause it is, it is different as much as I want to help patients. It is different coming from a physician perspective. And I do have people who are close to me who do have arthritis and inflammatory disorders. And it is very different seeing them as their friends or loved ones versus being a physician. So I get it and I understand and I see them struggle and they're in pain and it's, it's very humbling when I can't help them. So I understand like pain really does affect every cornerstone of your life. And I, as a physician will do my best to help that. I can't guarantee I'm always going to have the answers, but you know, I'm here to, again, just educate people and just, again, even if it's just pointing them in the right direction, sometimes that's all that's needed. So people can lead healthy lives, you know, having arthritis or autoimmune disease is not a death sentence. It just takes some time. Like you said, some work, some engagement and like hope. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like I, I refer to this philosophy every episode, but the acceptance and commitment therapy approach is what I learned when I went to therapy with a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And it's like about saying it's not about eliminating all pain and suffering from your life because that's inevitable, whether you have arthritis or not. There's going to be some sort of suffering, there's going to be pain, whether it's physical or psychological or both. And so learning how to face those things head on and not say, I have to resolve all these issues before I lead a life that I, you know, love or so. Yeah, I, I, that just really, really resonates with me. I think for, you know, what you're saying is the physician doesn't always have the answer to make the pain go away, but just the empathy that you can provide, at least in, in that 
orientation of like, I'm here to support you versus like, I'm here to dismiss you is such a huge gift yeah. that you can give to somebody who might've been dismissed or felt dismissed previously by other professionals, whether they intended to or not. So I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast. And I know I'm going to put all the links in the show notes, but I want to give you a chance to say it out loud in case there's like maybe some auditory learners who are like, oh, I don't want to look for the show notes. Where I know can people there's, a there's a lot of information out there. So right, I yeah. get it with the reading, but you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Maggie Cadet, C-A-D-E-T, spell like cadet, but pronounced Cadet. I'm always on there educating people about different types of arthritis and just being a physician and, and parent. So it's uh, multi and, and fitness too. Yes. And so I, much. I love your posts. It just, it, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot, but I do love it. And also I have a website, www.maggiecadetmd.com where if you have the time, there are longer blogs. There's long, there's more information about the individual arthritis conditions and autoimmune conditions. So the Instagram is just a snapshot. And then if you really want to know more, then just go to my website and, you know, I'll be doing work with the Arthritis Foundation and Lupus Foundation and Lupus Research Alliance and, you know, just keep going. You have, I mean, yeah, I really appreciate taking your time out of your busy schedule. So I really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing people's responses and comments yeah. after making this live. So thanks Absolutely. again. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, your guide to a full life with RA. It's my comprehensive online education and empowerment program. I'm so excited about it. And to learn more, go to www.myarthritislife.net. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.